Well, good morning. Thank you so much for being here this morning. We are continuing in a series that uh, we've been going through in the entire summer. We've been going through the book of 1 John. So if you have a copy of God's Word, if you open up the, to the book of 1 John, chapter 5. And as a very small recap, I want us to take a look at some of the things that John has been trying to drill into the minds of believers over things that we should know. Um, Put a few of those up on the screen. Some of the things that we should know is first we should know God. We should know that we are in God. We should know that uh, that it is the last hour. We should know the truth, that Jesus is righteous, that we will be like Jesus, that Jesus came to take away sin. A few other things that he wants us to remember and know is that Jesus is sinless. That we have passed from death into life. He wants us to know love. Uh, John wants us to know that God abides within us. Wants us to know the spirit of God. Wants the spirit of truth, us to know the spirit of truth. But also be able to recognize the spirit of deception. We know that we love God's children as we looked at last week. So to know can be a very confusing thing to know. Uh, One of the ways that I kind of thought would make most sense today is I remember uh, not very long ago we were doing some remodeling around the church. And one of the things that we decided needed to be done uh, sooner than later were windows around the church. We had some windows in the nursery in the youth and children's department and in the kitchen that just really needed some attention. So we got some bids from some companies, several different bids, uh, some high, some low, and we took one in the middle. And one of the reasons why we took one of these bids in the middle is that we met with a man and he told us, okay, through the life of these windows, if at any time you break one of these windows, we will come and replace that window for free. And I thought to myself, yeah, right. It's a little too good to be true. Uh, so I said, so I got very specific with him at that moment. You're telling me that if me and Landon are standing right here playing catch and I miss the ball, I wouldn't throw Landon under the bus like that. I miss the ball and it goes through the window that even though it's 100% our fault, you will come and replace the window. Yep, we'll come and replace it. So I have that stored in the back of my mind. I know what he said. But then it was actually put to the test, right? And we found a window that was broken in the small fellowship hall. It was probably a youth. No one claimed to do it, right? That's we always get blame the youth. It's fine. Just kidding, guys. Uh, But it was broken. So we call the guys up. We have a broken window, small fellowship hall. Great, we'll be there to fix it. And within the week, they came. They replaced the pane of glass. They pressurized it from the inside to make it all good. And It was good. So we knew at that moment that what this man said was a reality. It was true. What he we could believe what he said because it was true. And that's how John wants us to think about when we talk about knowing that we have eternal life. He wants us to know that it's real. And he doesn't want us to know that it's real when we take our last breath and enter into eternity. He wants us to know that we have eternal life. Here and now. If you're here and you confess Jesus as Lord and you're following after him, he wants you to know, John wants you to know right now 
He wants you to have certainty about your relationship with Jesus. And he wants you to have certainty and confidence about uh, eternity moving forward. We've talked about the theme. Uh, John wrote the letter so that believers could have certainty about their relationship with Jesus. I write these things. You know, some scholars believe that these things only refer to chapter 5, but it is more accurate to say these things refers to the entire letter. John mentions, I just want to show you a little comparison. John mentions eternal life in the book of 1 John six times. He mentions the Son of God eight times in in this letter. He uh, mentions the word believe five times, and he mentions the word know 29 different times throughout this letter. 105 total verses, 29 of those contain the the word uh, no in it. 28% of this letter is talking about things that he wants us to know. Repetition. Landon spoke about this a few weeks ago, about repetition is the key to learning. So by mere repetition here, John wants us to know that we have eternal life. The question is, who are the we that have eternal life? The we are those who believe in Jesus, who... Uh, believe in Jesus in such a way that it merits our obedience to him, that it also merits our love for other people. I think we've heard that before. Um, And John is writing this letter not only for us who believe, but he's also writing this letter against people who have turned their back on the church, who have turned their back and said that Jesus is not the only way. And uh, so he's turning He's talking against people who have left the fellowship and were teaching a different way. And this letter was written to encourage those who remained in the fellowship, but it's also against those who had walked away. And he was telling them there's no confidence for those who have walked away. There's no confidence about that eternal life. And I find it extremely interesting today that in our world, especially here in the United States, that a lot of people base their confidence in eternal life, they base their confidence in God on a decision that they've made. Maybe they've walked down an aisle, they filled out a card, they've gotten dunked in the baptistry, and that's what they base their confidence in their relationship with Jesus on. Maybe they base it on a feeling, on how they feel. And John is telling us here as believers uh, that to do that is um, false hope. If you're not connected to a group of believers, if you're not connected to the church body, uh, it's not built on real confidence. True confidence is built biblically on your connections with the church, on your connections with the church body, with the fellowship of believers. So from this moment, from 1 John 5.13 to the end of the book, things that we can know continue to dominate the conversation. And seven times between 5.13 to the end of the book, we're going to see the word no. And it's not I hope so. It's not uh, I think so. It's I know so. So the big idea of this passage today is that believers need to confidently know that we have eternal life and can confidently appeal to the Father. So 1 John chapter 5, we're going to start reading in verse 13. It says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, 
that if we ask anything according to his will, he will hear <clears throat> his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death and I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is a sin that that does not lead to death. Let's pray this morning. God, I pray that you give us wisdom from your word. We pray that uh, God... As we look at this passage, as we look at what John is trying to tell us, that you would make sense and, Lord, we would apply it to our lives in such a way that we could better serve you, we could better bring you glory in this life. So, Father, make sense of it today. Help us to know these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, in a sense, the entire book of 1 John has been pointing forward to this book, uh, this verse. And I know that Landon has read this verse every week, uh, 5.13, 1 John 5.13, that John wants us to continue to know that we should have confidence that we have uh, eternal life. And so throughout this book, he's wrote, he's wrote this book so that we could, uh, so that our joy may be complete, so that we may not sin, I'm just highlighting over the past five chapters so that uh, we know that our sins are forgiven, so that we can overcome the evil one, so that we can know the Father. We know him who is from the beginning. He wants us to uh, know why he's writing this letter because he wants us to know that God's word abides in us uh, because we know the truth and no lie is of the truth. But he also wants us to know about people who are trying to deceive us. And that leads us to ask ourselves this question. Why did John think it was so important for believers to have confidence? First point, John wants us to know with confidence that we have eternal life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. John Piper says it like this. I am writing because you are true believers, but there are deceivers in your midst. And I want you to be rock solid confident in your present possession of eternal life as regenerate children of God so that you are not drawn away after sin. And if this letter has that effect, my joy will be complete. John says this would make John's joy the most complete if we truly believed the truth about what John is writing here, the truth about who Jesus is in such a way that we're drawn away from sin and drawn towards Christ himself. I just want to say this. He wants us to have confidence. He wants us to have 100% confidence. But it is possible for believers at some point in their life to have doubts. But Jesus, God, does not. they don't want us to have doubts. Uh, He wants us to know. He wants us to have assurance. Uh, So therefore you have verse 13. And the entire book has been pointing us forward to verse 13. And this point revolves around three tests. I think you've heard about these tests before. First of all, the, the Christological test. Do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? 
You can write in belief. The moral test. Do you believe? Do you obey what God has asked you to do? And lastly, the social test. Do you love your brother? And we all need to, as Christians, as Christ followers, if you claim to be a Christ follower, we need to measure, we need to look at these tests and we need to see how we measure up. Do I really believe that Jesus is the Son of God? Do I really obey what God is asking me to do? That's a hard one. It's very easy for us to say we believe in Jesus. But does it change our life in such a way that it merits obedience? And then, do we obey God so fully that we love other people? And as we've heard week after week, yes, this means loving those who aren't as easy to love as other people. We love everybody. We love our brothers. So those who believe Jesus is the Son of God, those who pursue obedience, they love others, they can have assurance that they have eternal life right now. Not down the road, but today, forever. And it's not something that we hope for in eternity. It's something that we can claim today. And I know, uh, as I said earlier, a lot of people base that hope and that assurance on a feeling, on how they feel. But feelings can deceive. Right now I'm studying in the book of Esther. And in the book of Esther, God's people are in slavery. Uh, Many of them are in bondage. And in the book of Esther, we have a lot of God's people who are choosing to go back to their promised land. They're being allowed to go back into their uh, homeland, but some remain behind. And in the book of Esther, you have a book that is, uh, does not mention the name of God at all. And yet God is still at work. God is still doing something. God is ha- making a plan to bring about Jesus. And through the line of Jesus, we know that our sins will be paid for. He still has a plan. He's still working out his plan for the good of those who love him. And so he's still in control of all that situation. So our confidence is in the Son of God, and no one else is worth believing in. That's why in John chapter 10, he says this, I give them eternal life. They will never perish, ever. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Jesus wants us to have confidence, and he wants us to have confidence uh, in who he is to the point that it changes our life to obedience and to love others. He wants us to know with confidence that we have eternal life. Secondly, he wants us to be confident in our prayers. Verse 14, and this is the confidence that we have towards him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. You know, Americans really like this verse. So we say, I'm going to go buy a lottery ticket, and I'm going to go ask God, God, I want to win. Right? It's that easy. Whatever I want, according to, there we go. Uh, That would be awesome if it worked that way, but it doesn't, right? Okay, what about something a little more realistic? What about when I prayed for my mom to be healed from cancer? Okay, Uh, my mom, several years back, she got cancer. It was a really bad cancer. She, that doctors actually told her, you only have about a 50-50 chance of making it out of surgery. So my mom goes through the surgery. She comes out. She goes through chemo. Everything went really good through chemo. And she went back for her checkup. No cancer. I was like, man, God is good. How awesome is that? It worked. I prayed for my mom's 
physical healing here on this earth, and there it was. Uh, Three weeks later, very quickly, after that diagnosis, she got sick. She went back. The cancer had returned. There was nothing more that they could do, and ultimately, this cancer took her life. So, with this verse, when I read it, how could I, how could, you know, I couldn't claim healing for my mom based on this verse. Because context is everything. And let's read it again. Verse 14. This is confidence that we have towards him that if we ask anything, what? According to his will, he hears us. God does not answer our prayers just because we trust that he will answer them. John Stott says it like this. Prayer is not a convenient device for imposing our will upon God or for bending, for bending his will to ours, but the prescribed way of subordinating our will to his. It is by prayer that we seek God's will, embrace it, and align ourselves with it. Every true prayer is a variation of the theme, your will be done. That's what we should be praying for, God's will to be done. Not our will. Our wills are uh, sometimes selfish. Uh, Sometimes they're not so selfish. But if it's not God's will, we truly don't know what uh, God's intended purpose is for something that is happening. God gives us prayer to conform our will to his will. Our desires to his desires. You know, Catherine and I have been working diligently on teaching our children how to pray. Um, And as smaller children than they are right now, we let it be generic, okay? God, thank you for this day. Thank you for the fun that we had. Help us to sleep good and have a good day tomorrow. Amen, right? But now we've started to say, okay, what else can we pray for? Who else can we pray for? You can't always be selfish. You can't always be me-centered. Let's think about things outside of the box, other people that we need to be praying for. Because prayer reminds me that God is good, Prayer reminds me that he loves me. But prayer also reminds me that he wants what's best for me. Sometimes I think that gets a little confusing to us. Because what God knows is best for us is not necessarily what we want for ourselves. This happens in prayer. Boyce says it like this. The privilege of prayer should not lead us to a preoccupation with our own affairs as though prayer were a blank check drawn on the bank of heaven, given to us so that heaven's resources can be spent purely on our own needs and pleasures. Prayer implies responsibility, and part of that is in intercession for other people. Which brings us to our last point. How can we pray according to God's will? And John is going to make a shift here. And John is going to move from here, from the content of prayer into A question, what should I be praying for? So, first of all, I think we can learn what God's will is from Scripture. Because I believe that Scripture helps us to understand the heart of God. A couple of examples from today. You can can pray from the Bible. You can pray from Scripture. God, I want you to give me the confidence and the assurance to know that I have eternal life here and now. And pray that you would help me to think of others when I come to you uh, on behalf of other people instead of myself. God, help me to 
not be selfish in my prayers. You could pray that. Or maybe the test. God, I pray that you would help me to know the truth about your son Jesus. I pray that you would help me to believe the truth about your son Jesus in such a way that it uh, helps me to obey your word. And in my obedience, Father, I pray that you would help me to love others the way that you love me. See, we take things in scripture and we turn it into a prayer. If you want to know the heart of God, if you want to know what types of things that we should pray for, we should pray scripture. It's very good for us. Because God communicates to us through scripture. And I promise if you pray anything from the Bible, it's going to come true. Because God's word is true. Now, we cannot be 100% certain what God's will in every single situation in our lives. But if we continue to fill our hearts and our minds with God's word, with the things of God, and we talk to God often, it will do like Romans 12 does. It will get us a, so that we know what his good and perfect will is for our life. It will help us to know what God's good and perfect will is for our life. <clears throat> so first of all, we learn what God's will is from Scripture. Secondly, we can pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ. It is God's will that we pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ who are struggling with sin. Um, this is hard sometimes. We look at someone's sin situation and sometimes I think we even want to say, well, they kind of had this coming. They knew better, right? Uh, maybe we turn a prayer request into a gossip session to talk about other people's sin. John is appealing to us to go to the Lord on their behalf for sin. John has spoken often about those who continue in sin not being born of God. So it's important for those to be identified in this situation. And as we, we as a church must fight to put sin to death in our brothers and sisters' lives. You see a brother and sister in sin. We should go to the Father and appeal to the Father on their behalf. We shouldn't talk about them. We shouldn't belittle them. Because victory over sin is a community project. Let me kind of explain that. You know, when one of us sins, when one of us may walk away from church, walk away from uh, the fellowship, it hurts the body. So we need to be on our knees for our brothers and sisters that we see in sin on their behalf, praying for them, that God would reveal them, himself to them and that they would turn away from their sin and turn back to God and to his people. doesn't give us the freedom to have a gossip session, to talk about other people's sin, but it does give us an opportunity to go to the Father on their behalf, that he would convict them of their sin and they would turn to Jesus. Now, Matthew 18 we're going to see Jesus say that if we see someone in sin, we should go to them. And maybe that's something that you can add to this scripture that we're talking to today. But John specifically is saying that we should pray for them and pray for their hearts to be turned back to God. Um, in America, we are home to one of the most confusing languages on the planet. More people struggle with learning English um, than any other language on the planet, right? They, we have some of the most uh, awkwardly weird statements uh, that people learning English just don't get. Statements like this, working a graveyard shift. Um, 
people have heard that and think, well, do they work at a cemetery? What is that working a graveyard shift? That does not make sense to a lot of people who don't know English or haven't been raised in America. What about it's a piece of cake? We know that to mean it's easy. To which foreigners will say, well, why didn't you just say it's easy? Why would you say it's a piece of cake? Why not a piece of pie? Why not a piece of cobbler? Why did you pick cake? Doesn't make any sense. What about, hey man, hit the light. You don't hit the light. You turn the light on or you turn the light off. You don't hit the light. I don't understand. I don't get it. Um, taking a rain check. They don't understand. Restroom. This is, a, this is a funny one because people did not understand restroom. Why do you call it a restroom so that when you go in, you, the last thing you're doing is resting? Why would you call it a restroom? So we're home to some very confusing statements. The readers of this letter must have known exactly what John was talking about, starting in verse 16, when he says this. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death, there is a sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. First time I read that, when Landon told me I was preaching the scripture, I was like... That is going to be difficult. A sin that leads to death and a sin that does not lead to death. And so, John does not elaborate because he assumed that his readers knew exactly what he was talking about. And when we hear it's a piece of cake, we know. When the people here that John was communicating to hear that, they knew exactly what he was talking about. But we don't get it. Unless you're really smart and you've gone to seminary and you know all those things. It's kind of confusing in this moment. So let's try to make sense of it. First, John is going to address a brother who is sinning a sin that does not lead to death. And we have to ask ourselves, does he mean physical death or does he mean spiritual death? That does not lead to death. And so, just so we don't get confused... Just so this, uh, I don't try to teach something that's not biblical. All sin leads to death. Adam and Eve, along with everyone in this room, have committed a cosmic treason against a holy God. And someday, because of that treason that we've committed against a holy God, we will physically die. So here John is speaking about spiritual death. A sin that does not lead to death. Okay, so spiritually and then of course he's going to address someone who is sinning a sin that does lead to death and then of course we need to contemplate if John is speaking to a follower of Jesus or someone who is not a follower of Jesus so yes he's speaking of spiritual death and he's also speaking to two different people in both of these circumstances he's talking about a follower when he's talking about it does not lead to death and he's talking about someone who is not a follower when it does lead to death. Scholars have different opinions on what this death is, that uh, the sin is that leads to death. And so a few thoughts worth addressing this morning. First of all, a specific deadly sin. John could be referring to a mortal sin, a high-handed sin, a very deliberate, very willful sin, uh, like Ananias and Sapphira found in Acts chapter 5. The disciples... Um, needed resources, they had a piece of land, they sell this piece of land, 
they bring this offering to the disciples and they say, this is all the money that we sold the land for. Yet, they had kept some of that money for themselves. They hid it in their tent. They lied to the disciples. God knew about this. And it says that Ananias and Sapphira breathed their last breath and they immediately died. So a lot of scholars uh, think that that might be one of the things that he's talking about. Uh, Secondly, they think maybe it's the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Jesus told the Pharisees that a rejection of the Holy Spirit would be unforgiven. John could be referring uh, not to pray for people who have done this, who have hardened their hearts to a point that they have little hope of ever repenting or turning back to Christ. Matthew chapter 12, Mark chapter 3, we see the Pharisees, when Jesus casts out demons, and the Pharisees say, look at what this man did through the power of the devil. And they're saying, listen, that's bad news, and that will not be forgivable. Lastly, a total rejection of the gospel. I think that John is probably referring to those who have walked away from the church, walked away from the gospel, walked away from the truth about who Jesus is. And this sin that leads to death does not mention these people as brothers, uh, implying that they have totally rejected the gospel, totally rejected the truth about Jesus, and they've walked away. I think that this view makes the most sense in the context of the book that we're reading and what this uh, book was written, who it was written to. So John is saying, yes, pray for those who have not sinned a sin that is leading to death. As far as everyone else, the people who have sinned a sin that leads to death, you probably should not pray for them because it probably won't do any good. So, with that said, what does that even begin to look like? How do we know if a person has sinned the sin that leads to death or they've sinned a sin that does not lead to death? And how are we to know if we should pray for them or not pray for them? Let me tell you a little story about a guy named Saul. Okay, Saul was a pretty smart feller. He did not believe Jesus was the son of God. And he didn't like all of these people that said Jesus was the son of God. So he made it his mission to go after and kill all the believers of Jesus. And he killed many of them. He had many of them murdered. Until one day when he met Jesus. Now, if you saw Saul before he met Jesus, you would say, that guy has definitely sinned a sin that leads to death. He's killing Christians. How could you not get any worse than that? Right? Let me tell you another story about a guy named Peter. Um, He walked with Jesus. He did ministry with Jesus. This guy was on fire. Uh, There was even a time when Jesus looks at his disciples when many people were walking away from Jesus. What you're teaching is too hard. We're out. And he looks at his disciples and he says, who do you say that I am? And Peter looks at him and says, you're the Christ. You're the son of God. He was a follower. He knew the truth about who Jesus was. The guys would call him very dedicated, right? Then Jesus is arrested. Jesus is put on trial. Peter's in the outskirts. People recognize Peter and they say, hey, wait, aren't you one of his disciples? Nope, don't know him. 
wait, I think I've seen you walk with him. Don't, don't you know Jesus? I don't know him. And at the third time, he goes so far as to even curse and say, I do not know the man. If you don't know any more to the story, you could look at Peter and say, that guy has sinned a sin that leads to death. I want you to flip over in your Bibles to Luke chapter 22. I want to give you an example of how we are to pray. Because Peter, in this moment, total rejection, denying that he even knew Jesus, not once, not twice, but three times. I want you to see how Jesus prayed for Peter. Starting in verse 31. Luke 22, starting in verse 31. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. That's dedication. And Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. I don't think that the sin that leads to death is the central point of this passage. And whatever the interpretation is that you give, uh, which one of those threes that you give it, we must always keep in mind that John wants us to, and this is your last point, John says we should be actively praying for our own and for others' forgiveness of sin. You know, Peter had a lifetime of faithful service to the Lord, even after denying that he even knew him. See, Jesus had the luxury of being God. And Jesus knew, I mean, John knew, Jesus knew that Peter would turn back. He knew that he would once again encourage his brothers. Jesus prayed for it. The thing is, we're not God. We're not Jesus. And so therefore, we don't know what someone's outcome will be. So therefore, I think John wants us to be actively praying for our, not only for our own sin, but for the sin of other people. Forgiveness of sin for our brothers and sisters. Let me end with this. We as Christians, we need no encouragement to not pray for someone. It comes very naturally for our prayers to be self-focused, to be inwardly focused, to be on our situation, what we need, our desires. It's very normal for us to pray for self. John here is reminding us, man, what an honor it is to be able to go to the Father on behalf of other people, especially those who we see struggling with sin. God wants us and John wants us to remember them in our prayers. So I believe that John wants us to know that we have confidence in our eternal status, that we know that we have eternal life. But he wants us to also be mindful to pray for those brothers and sisters around us that need it. Because I promise, if you think about it, we have family members, we have friends that we know that struggle with sin. And what an honor it is to be able to go to the Father on their behalf.